So here we go. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 31. That's where we're going to be. As you're turning there, uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but I am already really enjoying this series. I thought Jay and Jeff both did an excellent job of kicking this off. Uh, I, I, I love spiritual habits. I'm very bad at them, uh, but I, I love them and, and I work really hard to try to continue to improve at them. Uh, I'm not a type A personality by nature, and so it takes a lot of effort uh, for me to be organized and disciplined in those ways. Some of you, I know, uh, if it goes on the checklist, it's going to get done, regardless of what happens. If you have to plow through a hurricane, you're going to get it done, right? That is not my natural wiring, and so some of you guys are like that. It takes a lot of effort to do that, but we're going to talk about why it is worth the effort, because the reality is for many of us, we, we, the idea of inexpressible joy and life abundant and contentment in all circumstances and, and being consumed by Christ and driven by love and grace and forgiveness, all of those things, uh, all of which the Bible promises those who are in Christ Jesus have full access to, sound not just inaccessible but impossible. Right? You hear those things and you go, that's great, I will never have that thing. And, and there's a lot of stories in this room. Right? We've, there's a lot of different paths that have been covered in this room. And so there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case for you. But I think one common thread that, that I think most of us at one point or another share is, is falling victim to the idea that we will achieve or acquire something randomly that can only come through pursuit and effort. We're just hoping that's going to strike us and we'll just wake up one morning and just have it when it is actually something that Scripture says we need to work toward. And these habits that we're talking about, as we're talking about spiritual habits, um, the, these are things that we practice. Right? These are things that we choose to do in our own power in order to experience something that is entirely outside of our own power. Does that make sense? We tracking so far? So it's something that we do, it's an effort that we make in our own power in order to experience or put ourselves in the context where we're able to experience something that is entirely outside of our power. Right? We, we, it's not an end in and of itself. The practice is not the end. The practice is just a means to a greater end. So this morning we have Sarah, Sarah, and Jason up here playing, and, and Sarah and Jason do not practice guitar in order to get better at practicing guitar. Sarah does not practice playing the keys so that she can increase her ability at practicing the keys. No, they practice those things so that they can better be better at playing them. Right Now, as they practice, they do get better at practicing. That is one of the things that happens. But that's not the end, just to be really good at practicing. The end is to be really good at playing it. In fact, Playing it in such a way that you don't even have to think about it because you've practiced so much, now it just sort of comes naturally. Spiritual habits are very similar in that regard, in that it is something that we do not in an end itself. We don't do the spiritual habits so that we will get better at spiritual habits, although we do. We, we practice spiritual habits in order to experience abiding in Christ. The goal is Christ. The goal is more Jesus That's where, that's where we're heading. And this morning, uh, rather ironically, we're going to spend time talking about silence. That's fun. Um, so the spiritual habit of 
Silence is something that we're going to talk about. I'm going to explain what we mean by that, and, and we're going to talk about how and why uh, practicing that, being intentional in silence, can be so impactful and beneficial. Now, we're not going to do so by going to the obvious passages this morning, because where's the fun in that? Right? So we won't go to the examples of Jesus remaining silent before his accusers as a model for how we should do that, though that's a really great example. We're not even going to go to James, which spends the better part of a chapter talking about how essential it is for us to keep control of our tongue. We're actually going to look at a passage that doesn't say anything about silence. It is silent on the topic of silence, if you will. And, and maybe you hear that and you think, Robbie, why on earth would we look at a passage that doesn't even talk about spiritual disciplines at all, let alone silence, to learn about silence? I would argue that it is because we think passages like this have nothing to do with spiritual habits that our spiritual habits often remain frustratingly fruitless. That gaining our understanding of passages like we're going to look at this morning feeds, fuels, and grows our desire for, our motivation for, and the fruitfulness of our spiritual habits. And then in turn, those habits feed and fuel and grow our delight in and understanding in the truths of passages like Romans 8. So that's why I think it's important. Now this morning, I am lacking one of my technological devices, and so I'm not going to be able to do the notes as I'm talking like I sometimes do. So this morning, we join our notes already in progress. And I, what I've done is uh, the, the blue is a question, and the yellow highlight is an answer to the question. Okay, so what we have here in this passage is Paul asks a question, answers the question. Asks the question, answers the question. The means of uh, uh, it's a, a teaching tool, right? Is this true? No, it's not. Is this great? Yes, it is. Right? We often do that in how we communicate. And that's what Paul is doing here. And so we're going to walk through this together and and see hopefully what he is trying to communicate to us. What really ultimately the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us through Paul. Father, please help us to discern that and help us to discern spiritual things in your word, the things that we cannot understand in our flesh, that we cannot understand apart from you. Spirit, we cling to your promise that you will open our spiritual eyes, that you will enable and empower us to understand your word in a way that changes us. And only you can, and we ask that you would this morning. Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? It's a lot of things. Since as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul's acknowledging like the persecution, the difficult circumstances, they're real. But, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, just in case I left something out, not this, not this, not this, not anything else that exists will be able to separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you can see I numbered, a num- oh, no, you can't see. Now you can. You can see there's, I numbered, there's four essential statements that Paul makes in this. He asks the question, then he answers them with these unbelievable promises. We see God is for us. Right? That if is not a, I'm really not sure if he is or if he isn't. That's If you are in Christ, God is for us. And if he is for you, if God is for you, what on earth can anybody else, what in heaven or on earth can anybody else possibly do to you? That matters anyway. God is for us. And then number two, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He demonstrates the extravagance of his generosity in giving us what is most precious to him, his one and only son. And then goes on. God, it is God who justifies. God is the one who justifies us. Who is to condemn? So he is the one who determines your and my standing before him based on what Jesus has done rather than people determining our standing based on what we have done. You see the difference there? It's a really essential difference. God is the one who determines our standing before him, and he does so through Christ and what he has accomplished, right? Because Jesus Christ died, rose, and is actively interceding for us right now. That We could do a whole message just on that alone. God, Jesus as our advocate interceding for us right now. That is amazing. We don't have time for that right now. Suffice it to say, what is important in here is that Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God. You might hear that and you go, that sounds really familiar. Yeah, Paul says this a lot. In 1 Corinthians 15, he brings it up as the thing that he says is of most importance, of first importance, that Christ died and was raised again according to the scriptures. And maybe you hear that and you go, oh boy, here goes Paul again with his always talking about Jesus, always beating that same drum of the gospel, right Yes, he does, unapologetically. Paul delightfully and helpfully is super redundant regarding the thing that he says is of first importance in the entire universe. That's worth being redundant over. So he brings us back to that again, brings us to the cross, brings us to the gospel, right? And all of this is predicated on or, or, or based on, built on what? The love of God. So he says, who's going to separate us from that love? And then here he says, we're more than conquerors. All these things that are happening, we don't just conquer them. God more than conquers them. Whatever that means, it's better than defeating them. I think it may have to do with not just defeating them, but actually turning those ashes into beauty and creating something extraordinary and amazing and glorifying to him out of them. He says, we're more than conquerors in that. Why? Through him who loved us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. It is all based on His love for you and for me. So, there's the foundation, okay? Foundation is laid, and we're going to start doing some framing on that now. Why do you and I use words? Why do we speak? We speak to inform, 
to teach, to encourage, to confess, to warn, to exhort, to correct, all good things, right? We also use it to use them to complain, to wound, to defend myself or to attack others, to validate myself, to justify myself, to exalt myself and diminish others. And sometimes those kind of get mixed up in these. We can't really tell them apart. Proverbs says a lot about how we use our words. In Proverbs 10, it says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent or wise, as some translations translate that. A French philosopher once said, We speak little if not egged on by vanity. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a groaner, right? Like, ugh. We suffer quite a bit ourselves and we cause suffering quite a bit from the careless and unredeemed use of words. But when we are not confident in all of the things that the Spirit declares to be true about God and us in passages like Romans 8, then we must fight to keep control of our own image and the weapon that we use most often is our words. We must use words in order to shape your impression of me. I want to appear to be the thing even more than I want to be the thing. And so I use words in order to try to accomplish that. I want you to have a certain uh, impression of me. We want, we want that of everyone else, to have certain, a certain impression of us. Right? We want to appear strong or successful or good or powerful or generous or godly. And we use words like a paintbrush in order to create this image of ourselves that we want others to see. Or we use words to critique others or expose others or, or tear others down, which is really just a backdoor method of elevating myself again. Because it's in my expression of how wrong all those people are that I'm also secretly making sure you know I'm not wrong like they are. Or I often use words to try to protect myself. Right, I've got to defend myself from your image of me that you've created. Or prove that I am valuable or that I am right. I use my words then to justify myself or to redeem myself or to glorify myself. Rather than trusting in the God who has actually literally accomplished all of those things on my behalf and given to them to me, given them to me as a gift in the gospel through Christ, I instead choose to put my trust in my empty words, which are only capable of ever pretending that those things are true. Jesus says it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, and far too often to my shame, to my grief, that what is overflowing out of my heart is myself. And the cost is much greater than than just your and my reputation. Christ's reputation is on the line. The way one author lamented that a major problem for Christian evangelism is not getting people to talk, but to silence those who through their continuous chatter reveal a loveless heart devoid of confidence in God. Why is this such a big deal? Because of Romans 8. 
Because the God of all creation declared, this is what I have done. This is how I love you. This is who you are because of this is what I've done. We, as the people of God, should be marked by that reality and live in light of that and treat others in response to that. We should be, have a consuming confidence in our being loved by God and as a result, a consuming love for God and for others. God is for you, he declares. He gave his own son to demonstrate his love for you. He justifies you so that you could be in right relationship with him. Christ died and rose from the dead and is currently interceding on your behalf with the Father. Why? Because he loves you that much. Because of his pursuing, relentless, extravagant love. And he lavishes on us. Such a great word. I love that scripture uses that word. He lavishes us with grace and love. And then, just to punctuate that at the end, he says, and nothing, not a single thing in all of creation, natural or spiritual, can possibly budge you one millimeter away from that love. Nothing. So rather than building a house of cards with my words, we can rest secure in our God because of who he is and who he has declared us to be. The psalmist says it like this in Psalm 62, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Wait in silence because of our firm confidence in the unshakable love of God. So, in choosing to not speak, we both grow in our understanding of that and our trust in that, and we get to see God working in ways that we never will when we seize control. So what what kind of speaking are we talking about? Not gossip, slander, judgment, crude joking, mockery, complaining, condemnation. Those are sins. Those are a cancer that is eating us alive and, and distorting the image of our creator in his image bearers and grieving the Holy Spirit. Those are not things that we take a break from for a period of time. Those are things that we put to death. Starting now. When the, the ebb and flow of spiritual habits is taking a break from a good thing, even a necessary thing, in order to take a step back and, and focus on an equally necessary or even greater thing. So it's not we take a break from the bad things to do some good things. We take a break from the good things to do the better things. The ebb 
and flow of spiritual habits. We should have both, right? So the flow in regard to fasting, the flow is feasting, right? And feasting is good and right and beautiful. It's a celebration of God's provision. And then the ebb is we fast in order to fixate more on God himself than on the things that he provides. The flow is that, like Jeff talked about last week, the flow is that you let your light shine before people so that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He also said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And you go, wait a minute, it's a contradiction. No, that's the flow and the ebb. So the flow is letting those things be seen so that God will be glorified. The ebb is to serve in secret to ensure there's not not even a possibility of you being glorified in that. Only God, so that you can remind yourself he is the one who gets the glory even in the flow. The flow is fellowship and community. Those are biblical necessities, right? Directly commanded through the whole of Scripture, that we are to be in one another's life, in community with one another. The ebb is to retreat to a place of solitude so that... We can engage God alone, which then allows us to to engage in a spiritually healthy way. What we're talking about this morning is the flow of teaching and encouragement and biblical counsel and joyful celebration and all of that requires also the ebb of taking a break from giving and receiving all of that input in order to simply listen to God. Speaking is necessary, and silence is necessary. It is not more blessed to be quiet than to be talkative. The real problem is if you are unwilling or unable to speak or to stop speaking. That's what we need to deal with. The ebb and the flow when in constant rhythm is making each other better. The one feeds and fuels the other and enriches the other. When in operating in proper rhythm, the fasting makes the feasting all the more delightful and meaningful, right? Whether we're fasting from food or credit or words. If it's more helpful, I often like to think of the ebb and flow as inhale and exhale, right? I inhale the habits of retreat and I exhale the habits of engagement. And what's helpful to me in that is it reminds me that it's a problem to lean towards one at the expense of the other, right? You can't really say, well, I'm just really more of an exhale guy. That's going to cause some problems. You kind of need both. And the same is true in these spiritual habits. I thought for most of my life that my dad was just an inhale guy. This last week was the anniversary of my father's death, and so I spent quite a bit of time just kind of reflecting on him, his life, and who he was, and, and it dovetailed nicely with this message, as it turns out. My dad was a man of extraordinarily few words. He rarely spoke, typically only when spoken directly to. And because he seldom spoke, when he did, it carried significant weight. One of his former law partners shared at his funeral that if anyone in the firm ever found themselves disagreeing with my dad, they knew they needed to go back and do some more research because they were probably wrong. Because my dad had the reputation that if it was worth him saying it out loud, 
It's because he had already studied, researched, and thought it through to such an extent that he said that with confidence. He didn't speak flippantly. Which certainly played a role in my dad not losing a single case in over 40 years of practicing law. Which no one on planet Earth would have even known. Because he's not telling anybody that. Two weeks before his death, I just happened to ask. I was curious and I thought, Dad, do you have any idea over all these decades of practicing, like what you're, you keep note of your record? And I'm thinking like, I mean, I'm getting at best a ballpark because who over that time could possibly remember like wins and losses? I had no idea it was so easy. As it turns out, zero was really easy to remember. And even in the way he's communicating it, he says like, well, well, there was this one case that, um, that I lost, but we immediately wanted an appeal because the judge had mishandled the case. And I'm in the backseat of the car going, wait, so, so you're telling me that you didn't ever lose a case? You're undefeated? I, I guess you could, technically that's true, yes. But no one would ever know. But this is because the way he operated, the way he, he, he was wired, or so I thought, led him to only choose to say the things that he believed mattered. My father was not in any way cold. He was quick to laugh and he was joyful. He was just quiet. I envied my father so much, even as a kid. Even as a kid, I remember looking at him and going, I wish I was like that. I wish I was wired the way he is wired. That, I wish I could have that kind of gifting. And after my father passed away and we were going through his things, I found a notebook that no one in the family even knew that he had. It was old. He had had it for a long time. It was, everything in it was typed on a typewriter. And the first page of this notebook was crammed, single-spaced, over time, I don't remember the number, over 25 quotes from scripture, theologians, philosophers, poets, all of them, things like this. If you do not wish a man to do a thing, you had better get him to talk about it. For the more men talk, the more likely they are to do nothing else. He that has knowledge spares his words, Proverbs 17. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, and he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin, Proverbs 13. Or one of my personal favorites. Blessed is the man who, having nothing to say, abstains from giving wordy evidence of the fact. It's a good one, right? It wasn't just my dad's personality. It wasn't just my dad's wiring. It was a, person, a, a purposeful choice and a disciplined habit that he worked at for his entire life. There is a world of difference between not speaking out of apathy or emotional and social disconnection or, or a natural, natural inclination toward introversion and purposeful control of your tongue. One is just a result of nature and chance or emotional and spiritual unhealth. 
and the other is a mark of spiritual maturity and I would also argue courage. The reason we take a break from speaking, number one is to remember because the noise of my speaking makes me forget. I get so distracted formulating the next thing that I'm going to say that the last thing that there's any room for in my mind in any given situation is that God is for me, has given extravagantly to heal my relationship with him, that I am 100% responsible for shattering, and that literally nothing can diminish his love for me even a fraction of 1%. The missionary martyr Jim Elliott once wrote, Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. That he is, which is why he is so active in making sure that we never practice any. If we did, we just might remember who God is and who we are because of him. And as a result, much to Satan's dismay, we would no longer fear because God's perfect love would cast it out. We would no longer condemn others or fear their condemnation because we would remember that it is the Father who justifies. And we would not worry about the affirmation of or the criticism of others because we would remember how dearly and deeply loved we are by the Creator God of the universe. This is what actually awaits us in the silence. We fill our lives with more words and more posts because we fear that if we don't, then all we have to offer the world is our real selves. Or that everyone else will be helpless without our fixing them. And we end up robbing ourselves and others of hearing from Jesus rather than just hearing from me all the time. And what we might hear if we allow him to speak, is Jesus saying with gentleness and compassion, I am here. I have this. I love you. And we'll only hear that when we actually listen to him. Which is number two. We take a break from speaking in order to listen. It's a non-biblical proverb that says, Listen, or thy tongue will keep thee deaf. The theologian Francois Fenelon said, How rare it is to find a soul quiet enough to hear God speak. And the way James said it in Scripture is, Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. So many of us, Church, find ourselves discouraged and defeated that we cannot hear from God or even believe that it's not possible to hear from God when the reality is that for most of us, we're simply not quiet enough, long enough to even notice if he's speaking. It is in that quiet when I have finally stopped talking that I might actually hear the Father saying, I am for you. Who could possibly stand against you? I did not spare even my own son for you. Will I not graciously give you lesser things? What do you think I'm going to hold out on? Who's accusing you? Yourself? Others? The religious? The world? 
Who judges all of them? I do. And I do not condemn you. I justify you through the finished work of my son Jesus, who right now is interceding on your behalf. What do you have to fear? Nothing can overpower my love. Nothing. And it is in hearing that, believing that, knowing that, trusting that, that then allows us to listen to others. Because I can approach others secure in that love and the realization that I have nothing to prove and no one to defeat. I'm simply looking for opportunities to listen carefully and compassionately to others so that if the time comes that I should speak, what comes out of my mouth is light and life and love, pointing to the great and glorious gospel of the Jesus who came to the world to save sinners just like you and just like me. So we stop talking in order to remember, we stop talking in order to listen, and thirdly, we stop talking in order to exercise and increase our faith. In Exodus, God says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. This is a statement that he's making into a particular circumstance to the nation of Israel. But I have to wonder, how often is this also true of us? I seldom know because I'm seldom quiet enough to just allow him to work so I can find out. We so desperately need to control everything that we're afraid to allow the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do. And so I've been convinced by the enemy of my soul that God is insufficient, that he needs me to help out. And so if I don't say it, if I don't post it, if I don't forward that email, all is lost. As a result, I assume the role of the Holy Spirit in that person's life, and I am a terrible Holy Spirit trying to accomplish what only the Spirit can accomplish and somebody else fails every time. I would ask, when was the last time that rather than giving your opinion or advice, you simply prayed in faith and in confidence to the living God that the Holy Spirit would reveal the truth to that person and bring the conviction and the comfort that only He can bring? When we do that, I would argue two things often happen. Number one, you or they might actually feel that legitimate conviction. And I say I might also because I might be wrong. My advice maybe was really bad. And it's a good thing I didn't say it out loud because it was terrible and misguided and not what God had for them. So I might feel the conviction of, whoops, good thing I didn't say that. Or, I might be right, and it's the Spirit that revealed that to me. And if it is, then He is certainly capable of revealing it to them. And when it comes from within, from the Spirit Himself, that is always so much more convincing and convicting than when it comes from somebody else. When you throw a critique at me, my defenses go up. When it comes from within me, I have nothing to defend. I feel... The delight that the Spirit would love me in that way and motivated to actually do something about it. The second thing that happens is I will actually give God all of the glory instead of claiming much of it for myself. Because since I didn't say anything, it obviously wasn't because of my amazing argument and convincing that changed that person. Now, the flow, the exhale, is absolutely true. 
We must speak. Right? How will they know if no one tells them? Right? We, we absolutely must speak. We declare and demonstrate the gospel with our words. It's always necessary to use words. However, without the ebb, without also taking times to hold our tongue and trust in the spirit of the living God, we will not get to see him work. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, the Psalms say. Be still and know that I am God. It is in my being still that I become more convinced as I see him work in spite of me. So certainly we ask ourselves, but, but what will it cost if I practice silence? If I don't speak, if I don't say that thing, if I don't do that, what will it cost there is a cost to it, it's true. One significant cost is you, we, we lose the ability to control what other people think of us. We give that up. Which probably isn't the worst thing. That's not actually doing anything healthy for our souls. I think actually the greater question is what is it currently costing us because of our refusal to practice silence? James says it rather pointedly. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. Not, it's not all that it could be. It has no value whatsoever. So, because I trust that that is not what we want to walk in, we, we need some tangibles, right? What do we do? How do we do this? So I'm going to finish quickly with just a few hyper-specifics, okay? Some, some handholds for you to grab onto. How do we practice silence in a practical and, and tangible way? Uh, number one, don't speak. That's, that's number one. Literally or, or digitally, don't post. Okay? Just, just stop. Just shove the, th throw the keyboard onto the floor. Unplug, the, turn off the phone. Just stop speaking. Do so for an intentional time. Say, this day, this whole day, or this hour, or this week, or this whatever, set a specific amount of time and say, I am not going to speak. I am not going to post. I am not going to, I am not going to give my opinion about anything. And set, set a time. Don't say like, for 2021, that's, you're going to have to say something at some point. But set a time. Say, this morning, I'm taking an hour, I'm taking two hours, and I'm not going to speak. When praying, try listening more than you talk. So much of our prayer is just talking at God. Listen to Him. And if you're anything like me, that might last all of like four seconds before you get distracted and your mind starts to wander. That's okay. That's okay. Just say a, say a quick prayer or quote a quick verse that just gets you back centered again. My go-tos are, are, are speak, Lord, your servant listens. 
or Father, have mercy on me, a sinner, or Abba, Father, I am yours. Something quick to, to refocus your mind on who you're supposed to be focused on and to be able to fixate on him and ask him to help you, help me to focus on you. And then just listen. In other ways, if you are in a group conversation, decide to just listen. A checklist people, put on checklist. Wednesday, Wednesday is just listen day. However you want to do it, but make it measurable. Say, I am not going to contribute to the conversation. I'm not going to waste my time formulating what I am going to say as I wait for the other person's lips to stop moving. I'm going to just listen to what they're saying. Because I want to learn from them. I want to know more about them. I want to actually hear what's going on. And so I'm just going to listen and maybe ask questions to draw even more out of them. And you may hear that and go, well, but they're going to feel like I'm not contributing to the conversation. Oh, yes, they will, because there are few things that are more valued in a conversation than feeling heard. And when you are constantly interrupting the other person to get out what you want to say, or just waiting for them to stop talking so you can say what you think really matters, they don't feel heard. They don't feel listened to. So your contribution to the conversation is, I want everyone who is a part of this conversation to feel heard today. They don't need our opinions as much as we think they do. And here's the one, here's the one that I know, I know we don't love this one because Jeff dropped this one last week and there was an audible groan. He just mentioned it offhand and there was like a gasp. Another very practical thing that you can choose to do is in a discussion or argument, choose to not have the last word. Let the other person have the last word. And there's a huge asterisk on this, right? Because I did not just give you permission to storm out of the room. You're like, you just go ahead and keep having your last word because I'm not going to be here for it. That's, that's the worst. Don't do that. That's not listening. I'm not saying rudely disengage and just go blank while that person keeps talking. What I'm saying is choose to intentionally not just defend your position and explain why what you did is okay or why you were actually right and they're wrong and that your action was justified or that you know exactly how to fix all their issues. Just listen. Ask non-sarcastic questions in order to learn from that person, to hear how maybe what you did, even if it wasn't what you intended, legitimately hurt them and how you can love them better in that thing. Why? Why is that weird, specific thing so important? Because when we refuse to do that, we are acknowledging, I believe I must justify myself. That is my job, to justify myself. And so in choosing to not justify or defend myself, I am practicing, I am exercising the belief 
that God has already justified me. He's done a way better job than I could. The work is done. And the more I practice that, I may over time find myself really believing that. And then when we do speak, we choose to limit our words. Paul's an amazing example of this, which is, I think, a little ironic as a guy who wrote more letters in the New Testament than anybody else also, in many respects, was the best at holding his tongue. As he says to the, in his letter to the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Speech and message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our hope, our prayer as pastors in this church is that what you would take away is Christ and him crucified. I do not believe it's a win if you leave this place and go, wow, Robbie's really good at speaking. You probably aren't thinking that anyway. But if you are, what I would rather you be thinking is, wow, that Jesus that Robbie's always talking about is extraordinary. And when we open the word that you would not think, wow, that's so amazing that they can pull that out of there. I would never see that. More, we would want you to be able to go, Oh my goodness, why didn't I see that? It's right there. Obviously, if I just spent more time reading it and asking the same spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead that dwells in me to help me, I would see that same thing. Because the last thing we want is to grow your dependence on us when what you need is dependence on Christ. The same spirit that dwells in me dwells with you if you belong to him. And it's the worshiping team comes up and we close in, in, in a few songs to respond to that. My prayer for you is that you would, you would commit to taking time to stop speaking and listen. Maybe this week that looks like taking time and, and, and just reading through this passage of Romans over and over again. Maybe it looks like having no Bible in front of you and just listening to God. Maybe you are already imagining, oh man, this is the context where I, I feel like I can't stop talking and this week it's going to be different. I cannot wait to hear the stories of how you experience God in extraordinary and unique ways when you believe that he is the one who is powerful and then it's not our words that change. Spirit, please help us to know that, to believe that and help us to practice this art of silence, the spiritual habit of listening to you, to listening to others, and that you would make your presence evident in that, that you would grow our faith, and that you would remind us day in and day out who you are, what you have done, and who we get to be because of you.